Welcome to Navarra Life. I'm Michael Walker, hosting on a Thursday for a change. Um, I will be joined by Aaron Bastani in a moment. And um, first of all, I'll talk you through what we will be discussing tonight. There is civil war again in the Conservative Party. It's over what seems to me a bit of a silly issue, whether we should just repeal all of the EU laws at once or maybe do it bit by bit. As I said, I don't know why this is a, a huge row within our political class, given everything we know that is wrong with the country. We're also um, talking about the Bank of England raising interest rates, Trump on a town hall in CNN. Was it a mistake or on CNN, sorry? Um, and a clip of Robert Jenrick um, getting owned on Channel 4. You might have seen it already um, on Twitter. We're going to give you the analysis. First story. It's all kicking off in the Conservative Party. During Rishi Sunak's first leadership campaign when he was up against Liz Truss, Rishi Sunak promised to remove all 2,400 EU laws from the statute books. They'd be shredded. Um, since then, um, they found a few more EU laws. The total um, now stands at around 4,800. So Rishi Sunak said he'd get rid of all of them, but he's now gone back on that pledge. And the, head, the, the Brexit headbangers in his own party are not particularly happy. The retained EU law bill was introduced under Liz Truss's brief stint in Downing Street. It set a deadline of the 31st of December this year, at which point most EU laws would expire. That was unless ministers decided to retain or replace them. But now that deadline has been scrapped. No longer will we be losing all EU laws before the end of the year. Writing in the Telegraph, Business Secretary Kemi Badenoch laid out a new and much more modest target. The government has been clear since the introduction of the retained EU law bill that we will deliver on the promises of Brexit without abandoning our high standards. We will not abolish any law for the sake of it. The laws we will retain are essential to the effective functioning of business and industry. We will not reduce workers' rights and protections, nor will we repeal maternity rights or threaten the high environmental standards currently in place. And we will ensure that we do not revoke legislation required to uphold our international obligations. Now, you might question whether this is really a party that's upholding workers' rights, but there we are. I'm pleased to say that the government has already reformed or revoked over 1,000 pieces of retained EU legislation, in addition to the list of around 600 coming in the bill, the Financial Services and Markets Bill, and in the Procurement Bill, both of which are nearing completion in Parliament. The Procurement Bill will repeal around 500 pieces of retained EU law. Taken together, this forms a significant removal of EU laws from our statute books by the end of 2023. So essentially, what's happened is this all sounds a little bit wonky, um, but it does make some sense. Rather than picking the laws the government wants to keep and letting all the others expire at the end of the year, so sort of saying, if we haven't decided we want to keep it by the end of 2023, it will get shredded. Instead, um, they've turned it around and it's a bit more sensible, I think. Now ministers will work through the remaining law, picking out the ones they want to scrap. So instead of saying there's an assumption it will be shredded, they're now saying we will only shred it if we want to shred it. Um, it means that we are less likely to accidentally lose important laws at the end of the year. Um, it sounds reasonable, but it was enough to rattle the European research group. Jacob Rees-Mogg appeared on Radio 4's Today programme, where he gave his take on the U-turn. Bear in mind that I think it was 1,400 of these laws were found in the National Archive because they weren't actually being used. Now, surely we should be getting rid of at least of those. But surely so that's just a gesture, Mr Rees-Mogg. It's a way of Brexiteers who, it seems to me, are pretty frustrated that you've not managed to deliver much of what you promised to the electorate when you told us to leave the EU in 2016. It's a gesture. It doesn't matter if they're not used. Who cares? 
Well, it tidies up the statute book. It's important to have a statute book that's actually functional. But it's much more than that. It's dealing with the opportunities to deregulate the economy so that prices can come down, so that inflation falls, so that interest rates don't need to rise so much. If we want to have growth in this economy, we need the famous supply-side reforms. And these come from this. And it's hard enough to motivate Whitehall at the best of times. So they're not necessarily coming into the office. They don't seem to be working with the efficiency that one would like. And people find this in many public services. Um, but the opportunity of the repeal of retained EU law was to force this to happen. But you've criticised the blob. You've alluded to it there, thinking that Whitehall is going slow on this. Kemi Badnock says in a piece for The Telegraph, they're prioritising the ones they think they need to keep ahead of the deadline rather than the ones to go. I put it to you again, though. This is a government led by a Brexiteer, Rishi Sunak. The business secretary is a passionate Brexiteer and declared a deregulator. You yourself were prominent in government. You as politicians have simply not delivered, have you? Well, I think that you're absolutely right. The politicians have not delivered. And this comes back to the prime minister's promise in his video during his leadership campaign when he said he would do this. Now, bear in mind, at that time, he had already given right round consent to the retained EU law bill. I had briefed him on it. He knew that it wasn't easy. He knew that it was going to be an effort to get it done by actually a slightly longer deadline at that point. He accepted the deadline of 2023, uh, and then he has broken his word. And this is very serious in my view. Very serious in his view. So, I mean, I, I mean, he didn't, to me, really seem to explain why it mattered. He, he thinks that if you get rid of all these laws we're not using, that will magically deregulate the economy and bring about growth. Obviously, we don't believe that deregulating the economy is the kind of thing or will bring about growth in the first place. I think this is, you know, 1980s economics that has pretty much been debunked, especially in a situation as we are in now. Britain is already fairly deregulated. But I don't think if these laws aren't being used, then they're not going to have much effect if you get rid of them. It's just to say, if a doctor finds something you know, the, the appendix, let's say, we still don't really know what it's for, but we don't just whip it out willy-nilly. If it's not doing any harm, you leave it in there. That seems to me to make some sense here. Um, members of the ERG, so that's the European Research Group, tabled an urgent question for Kemi Badenoch today. She's appeared in Parliament and it wasn't friendly. Uh, Marc Francois asked her this question. On the 18th of January this year, it passed third reading with a government majority of 59 and again not a single Tory MP voted against it. So it had managed to unify the Conservative Parliamentary Party on an admittedly controversial issue. It left this House without a single Tory MP opposing it. Why then, when it's gone to the other place, the House of Lords, has the government performed a massive climb down in its, on its own bill despite having such strong support from its own backbenches. Secretary of State, what on earth are you playing at? Mr Speaker, I've already explained the reasons why we have changed the approach, and I'm very, very happy uh, to repeat them for my honourable friend. He should know that I'm not somebody who gets pushed around lightly. The fact is, I went in and looked at the detail, and I decided that this was the best way to deliver it. This was not, and I, I, I will stress again, this was not the Prime Minister's decision. As a Secretary of State, I have to be responsible and look at what we can make sure is deliverable. This is the best way to get him what he wants. It may have been different from what was put on the floor of the House, but if he wants what I want, which is ending 
EU interpretive effect by the end of this year, tell ending the supremacy of EU law by the end of this year. I can tell him he is not in the room. He's very welcome to send me the list of things that he wants repealed. But this is the way to get it done. In Parliament today, it wasn't only the Brexiteers losing their temper. Speaker of the House, Lindsay Hoyle, um, had his own words for Badenoch. I know that it is highly regrettable that the government decided not to offer an oral statement on this matter yesterday. Given the importance of this announcement, on such matters, full engagement with Parliament and its committees is essential. Before I call the chair, I will remind the government we are elected to hear it first, not to read it in the Telegraph, and certainly not a WMS is satisfactory on such an important matter. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, I'm very sorry that the sequencing uh, that we chose was not to your satisfaction. I was... uh, (laughs) Order, 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 order. That is totally not acceptable. No. Who do you think you're speaking to, Secretary of State? I don't want. I think we need to understand each other. I am the defender of this House and these benches on both sides. I am not going to be spoken to by a Secretary of State who is absolutely not accepting my ruling. Take it with good grace and accept it that members should hear it first, not a WMS or what you decide. These members have been elected by their constituents and they have the right to hear it first. And it is time this government recognised we're all elected, we're all members of Pump, and use the correct manners. God, that guy is high off his own supply. Um, just so self-important. How dare you release this information in a written statement instead of an oral statement to the House of Commons? I'm the defender of democracy in Britain. Shut up. Well, it's clear that, it's, uh, that the, news, the, the relatively new Speaker of the House, Lindsay Hoyle, is trying to emulate John Burko in being, you know, he has main character syndrome. Nobody cares, right? It's like football or any sport. The most effective referee or umpire is the one you barely notice. So the idea that the Speaker of the House has main character syndrome is is a problem. It's not about you. And like you say, they get furious about these relatively trivial arcane matters, uh, which 99.999% recurring population don't give a toss about. So, Michael, don't feel too guilty about siding with Kemi Badenoch. I think in this instance, you're right. And on the, the issue of this, this retained EU law, I mean, it's, it's exercising lots of these right-wingers. Jacob Rees-Mogg is going on about it all the time. To me, it does seem completely ridiculous. To, the, the idea that sort of in the middle of a lot of intersecting crises, you would have as a government priority to get rid of all the laws and then work out if you needed any of them afterwards instead of sort of going through them and say, well, if we want to get rid of this one, we'll get rid of this one. If we want to get rid of that one, we'll get rid of that one. And I suppose sort of listening to Jacob Rees-Mogg and those Tory backbenchers, it does seem to me there is kind of, you know, beyond saying the people voted for it and so we should do it, I can't really think of anyone who is offering a positive vision of Brexit anymore. You know, who who is the person who is saying, yes, Brexit is great, we can make it work. I feel like all the people who were once arguing for Brexit now just argue about what a proper Brexit means. And they've sort of, you know, uh, who are the cheerleaders for what Brexit actually means as opposed to saying what Brexit is and is and isn't? What's your take on that? Yeah, it's a great point. And like you say, this idea that, oh, we have to get rid of every single piece of legislation from our time in the European Union. Obviously, Britain was a member of the European Union from 1973 to uh, 2020 or 2021, depending on how how you want to measure it. Um, So uh, clearly, 
it's going to take a while to get through all of this. The idea that you would just jettison the working 48-hour working directive or statutory maternity pay uh, and leave legislation, which, by the way, when Jacob Rees-Mogg says, you know, we need supply-side reforms, he, he means this stuff, right? That's what he means. That's the subtext. It's not irrelevant stuff. It has to be, if you're talking about supply-side, you're basically talking about really big stuff, which has an impact on the labor market. And the argument that comes from people like Jacob Rees-Mogg, there's two arguments here, right? The first is from people like Jacob Rees-Mogg, and they say, well, it'll increase productivity if we get rid of the 48-hour working time directive, and if we change, you know, statutory maternity leave, et cetera. Hold on a second. The Netherlands, France, Germany, all these countries in the European Union have higher productivity, which is to say GDP per hour worked. They've all, they've all got better productivity than we have, yeah, they have these things that you want to get rid of, apparently, because that will unleash Britain on the supply side. Well, I mean, probably not, right? We've, we've got a really good comparison right now. We already have very low productivity, having the exact same legislation on these precise same issues as many of these countries in Europe. So th that doesn't really add up. I mean, they, they obsess about the 48-hour working time directive. I would really implore our viewers and, and listeners on the podcast later on to go and Google it. See what the legislation says. It doesn't apply if you're in a senior management role. It doesn't apply if you're in 48 hours like shift work. It doesn't apply to emergency services and a bunch of other industries. Um, and also, you can get opt-outs. You can literally apply as an employee to opt out of the 48-hour working time directive. You can do that today. So this idea that, well, if I want to work more than 48 hours, I should be able to. Well, you can. You can opt out of it. It's just one more of these absurd scare stories which frankly are, are, are filling the vacuum of, of proper politics. And like you say, a propositional uh, vision for Brexit. Because they don't have one, they have to keep on banging on about this absolute nonsense, like the 48-hour working time directive. You know, the idea that you can't work more than 48 hours a week. Uh, I mean, I, I'm sure basically everybody watching this has done that, right? One time or another. Um, so this idea that, you know, somehow the government's going to come, come along and arrest you if you work more than 48 hours, that's, they try and present it the nanny state. No, it's something that, generally speaking, suits workers very well. Um, it's very positive if you want a work-life balance. And if you want to opt out, you can. It doesn't apply, apply to people who are self-employed or who have oversight of their own work, i.e. managers. Very, very uh, sensible piece of legislation. Now, we can get rid of it if you like. The government has a mandate. It can do that. Uh, but the idea that it's going to somehow magically, you know, turbocharge UK GDP when it applies to far wealthier countries in continental Europe. I mean, again, it, it really just fills that vacuum of actually having a vision here. How are we going to run the British economy in the 21st century? They don't have answers for that, so they're just stuck with nonsense like this. No, I wholeheartedly agree. I just want to put on record, I, I do not want to work a 48-hour working week, and I don't <laughs> think anyone ever should. Um, so I, I actually, I mean, I, I see what you're saying, Aaron, in terms of is it a priority to get rid of this thing? Even from their perspective, it shouldn't be because there are so many opt-outs. I actually think we shouldn't have the opt-outs because as soon as you make the possibility of having an opt-out, then what that means is your boss can pressure you to sign up to the opt-out. We're moving on to a slightly different story. Once again, the Bank of England has raised interest rates. It's the 12th consecutive hike in the rate, taking it to 4.5%. That's the highest it's been since October 2008, which was bang in the middle of the financial crisis. The latest rise, like the 11 previous ones, is supposed to reduce inflation. In March, the last month, we have a measure for inflation. It stood at 10.1%, down just 0.3% from 10.4% the month before. So not very much then. So is the bank's strategy working? Sky News put that question to Bank of England Governor 
Andrew Bailey. Today, you're talking about the fact that food price inflation has been higher than expected. You've had to upgrade or yeah. raise your inflation forecast before it was, you know, Putin, before it was energy. People are looking at the bank, they're looking at your inflation forecast and they're saying you keep getting it wrong. I mean, is, is the simple truth here that basically the bank isn't very good at forecasting? I don't agree with that. Um, I, I want to be very clear. We are having, you know, we're experiencing huge external shocks coming into the We're not alone in this. I mean, other countries obviously have got the same situation. Those external shocks are, you know, frankly, not something you can forecast as such. I'm things, afraid, things like the war. Something like the war. You can't but, forecast but, wars. But the bank was missing its forecast before the war. It was missing its forecast before the big, the big rise. Yes, because there was because there was an impact from in COVID. 2021. There was an impact from COVID on 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 what we tend to call supply chains, on 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 the supply of goods into into the into the world economy. Actually, now that was the first shock we dealt with, sort of post COVID. What I think has been particularly difficult in this situation is that we've had this succession of big shocks with no gaps in between, and we've had to deal with those. And we've had to adapt policy as those shocks and their effects have come along. And I also would fully recognise we learn things about those shocks as as they go on. So the transmission of food prices, it's going to take longer for it to work through. It's not that it is going to become persistent in the sense of never going away. We, All the food producers and retailers I talk to say, no, it is going to come down this year, but it is taking longer. That, I think, has some things to do with the nature of the shocks that we're experiencing, and you know, particularly, I'm afraid, sadly, how the war in Ukraine has, has fed through into elements of the world economic system. Bailey spoke a lot about food price inflation there, and the price of groceries have been rising at the fastest rate in over 45 years. That's according to the Office for National Statistics. In the year to March, food prices rose by 19.2%. In the year to February, food inflation stood at 18.2%. That's a figure that's still moving in the wrong direction. In more positive news, the bank updated its growth forecast by the biggest amount on record and scrapped its earlier prediction of a recession. It now says the economy will reach its pre-pandemic size by the end of this year. That's cold comfort, though, for the 1.3 million mortgage holders whose fixed rates will expire by the end of the year. They can expect to see an additional £200 added to their monthly costs. Responding to the latest hike, Chancellor Jeremy Hunt said this. Although it is good news that the Bank of England is no longer forecasting recession, today's interest rate rise will obviously be very disappointing for families with mortgages. But unless we tackle rising prices, the cost of living crisis will only carry on, which is why we need to be resolute in sticking to our plan to halve inflation by the end of the year. Um, To which the response should be, if you want to halve inflation without hurting ordinary people, please tax the rich. We can take demand out of the economy by taxing the super rich who are pushing up property prices and all sorts. I presume that's not what Rachel Reeves, the shadow chancellor, said. Let's have a look at her tweet. People will be racked with anxiety by this news. The PM must admit his responsibility for the Tory mortgage penalty, leaving so many worse off. We need a proper windfall tax on oil and gas giants now to ease the cost of living. Okay, fair play. Um, She did talk about taxing the rich, obviously, probably not to the extent I would have liked her to, um, but credit where it's due. Aaron. Interest rates up to 4.5%. Um, you're a mortgage holder. Um, I can talk about rent. You can talk about mortgages. What does this all mean? You make it sound like I'm sort of, sort of expert. There's millions of people who've got you know, special insights. We can all have a sub stack on, uh, on interest rates. Um, <laughs> it's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, we, we remortgaged last year and the mortgage broker was like, don't worry, you know, inflation will go down, interest rates will go down. Just do two years. And I said, we're doing five years. That's, uh, 
you know, compromising on that. Absolutely no way are we going to risk um, risk that. No, no, it's very possible that in 2025, um, 2024, interest rates go back down again. But I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet on them being back to where they were last year. I mean, you have to remember, it's only about 14 months ago that the base rate of interest was 0.5 percent. 14, 15 months ago, it really. I think it was March last year where you got, you know, it was at like 0.5%. So this has happened quite quickly. So there's two, two observations to make. Firstly, it is really impressive how we haven't had a bigger economic downturn. If you said to most sort of economists three, four, five years ago, you know, well, we've had virtually 0% interest rates for more than a decade. What happens if we bump them up from 0.25% or 0.5%? And this refers, by the way, to... The, the base rate of interest, which is the rate of interest to which the central bank gives money to private banks, which then obviously give money to us at a higher interest rate, and that's how they make money. It sounds like a rig system. That's because it, it is a rig system, but anyway. Um, if you'd said that to most sort of analysts and people in the know, they would say, well, there'll, there'll, there'll be a recession. There'll be a real, really sharp economic downturn. And I, I think that's also a really striking thing. We're in a bad situation. L- living standards and falling wages, I think, is the bigger problem than... Uh, than uh, a recession. So even if we get "quote unquote" growth this year, and bear in mind they're simply saying that the economy will return to the same size it was in 2019, at the end of 2023, and in 2019 it wasn't really any bigger. It's actually, I think, slightly smaller per person than it was in 2008. So you know you are still looking at 15, 16 years of utter stagnation. But I think the wage, the wage problem, and falling living standards is the bigger issue here than the deep GDP contraction. Uh, this 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 sort of statement by Andrew Bailey that oh, you know we we didn't know the war would happen. Our prediction, the predictions are still wrong. Their predictions were wrong three months ago, six months ago. You know, I think uh, two or three months ago they were saying that basically by the end of this year in, inflation will start falling, and they were saying by I think early 2024 that inflation would be around two percent. They were saying that like three three months ago. That's very unlikely. So this idea that, well, we made these predictions and forecasts, but we could never know the war would happen. They were making many forecasts after the war happened, which were miles off. Um, And then uh, one more thing to add to this is, like you say, Michael, inflation is clearly a problem, and it doesn't seem to have much to do with interest rates. The fact that we've had interest rates go up to 4.5%, and actually inflation is still really high, and there's a lot of copium coming from the Bank of England and sort of economic establishment saying, well, it's coming down. This does clearly underscore the fact that the inflation is coming from other places, supply side, particularly energy, of course, but also profiteering. We know there's a major problem here that under conditions of relatively high inflation, big corporates try and make a larger profit. How does that work? Well, you're a private company, inflation is 10%. You say to your customers, sorry, we have to increase the price of the goods you buy by 10%. That's inflation or 11%. And you say to workers, we can't possibly afford to pay you a pay rise in line with inflation. Sorry, you're going to pay a rise this year of 4%. So all of a sudden, you've got a massive price spike, which is going to uh, to the businesses, bottom line, its shareholders, etc. Now, I'm not making this up, right? You can look, for instance, at a quote, like I said, I think on last week's show, the managing director of Harrods said, in a recession, the rich get richer. You can look at the fact that LVMH is now Europe's biggest company. It's worth $500 billion, a luxury, a luxury brand company. They own Louis Vuitton. Or the fact they're doing up Tiffany's in New York and they're spending millions on, on turning this place into a, a temple of luxury. Right? Luxury brands have never done better. Um, so it's quite clear that even though we're in a moment of economic stagnation and the average Joe is really struggling, 
the ultra rich, the elite, the 1% are doing super well. So I think you're right, Michael. We need to have a conversation about inflation and who it's benefiting uh, and where it's coming from. It's not coming from wage demands. We know that because we've still got inflation of 10% and public sector workers are getting pay rise around 3%. So they're not causing the, wage, uh, the inflation to rise. We know where it's coming from. We know where it's coming from. Primarily energy and profiteering. And those are areas, particularly the latter one, profiteering, where there could be government intervention, there could be price controls, even just temporary. They choose not to do it. This idea, we, we can't do anything. You can do everything. You're the state. If you want, you can have capital controls. You can, you can call in the army to arrest. You can do whatever you like. You're the state. I'm not suggesting they do that, of course. You need to respect individual rights. But the idea that when you have food inflation of 20%, all the state can do is well, nothing, and it can just kindly say to the Bank of England, please raise, raise interest rates. When food inflation is 20%, extraordinary, extraordinary. And I, I don't really think there's any excuse for it in a liberal democracy. Very on the nose that in the middle of a recession, the, the person who has become the richest person in the world owns LVMH. And I think we should, you know, I think in a way it's, it's, it's not doing justice to call it LV, LVMH by its um, initials because it stands for Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy. So in the middle of a, you know, the, the worst cost of living crisis we have had since the Second World War, the, the company which is doing best is the ones that sells Louis Vuitton bags and champagne. Right, so this is boom time for designer bags and champagne. That tells you so much about the economy right now while everyone else um, is going through a really terrible time, to be honest. We shall move on. Donald Trump is running to be president again and his first town hall wasn't broadcast by the right-wing Fox News network, but rather by centrist CNN. Trump started the town hall exactly as he meant to go on with a lie. When you look at that result. And when you look at what happened during that election, uh, unless you're a very stupid person, you see what happens. A lot of the people, a lot of the people in this audience and maybe a couple that don't, but most people uh, understand what happened. That was a rigged election. And it's a shame that we had to go through it. It's very bad for our country all over the world. They looked at it and uh, they saw exactly what everyone else saw. You look, even if you just look recently with the 51 intelligence agents that made a 16 point difference uh, if you look at the but FBI, if you look at the FBI and uh, Twitter, uh, they call it Twitter files, made a big difference. If you look at Mr. President, the vote, back to what you just said there, though, it, it was not a rigged election. It was not a stolen election. You and your supporters lost more than 60 court cases on the election. It's been nearly two and a half years. Can you publicly acknowledge that you did lose the 2020 let election? Me, let me just go on. If you look at True the Vote, they found millions of votes on camera, on government cameras, where uh, they were stuffing ballot boxes. So with all of that, I think it's a shame that what happened, I think it's a very sad thing for our country. Uh, I think it's a very sad thing, frankly, for the world, because if you look at what's gone to our country, our country has gone to hell. Our borders are bad. Our military has been bad. You look at the taxes, you look at inflation, what's happened to inflation. It's just destroying our country. Uh, we've really become in many ways a third world country. So the moderator you saw there was Caitlin Collins, who did a terrible job of fact-checking the ex-president. So they've had so long to prepare for this. They've known that Donald Trump is someone who systematically lies. They know that he's running for president. They, lo they know that he loves to perform. And yet she let him go on for so long, not just repeating the lie, but then also going off on all his favorite talking points about why Joe Biden is rubbish. So I don't, it didn't seem to me um, like an interview that presided, or a, a town hall, sorry, that provided much scrutiny. And to make matters worse, 
it was Donald Trump, someone obviously a liar to anyone with any sense, who himself managed to position himself as the fact checker in chief. Here he is answering a question about the Capitol riots. You said you weren't very involved that day. You did tell your supporters to come to Washington. You tweeted about it, about sure, that speech that happened on the rally. Am I allowed so when to they, say that? When they went to the Capitol and they were breaking into the Capitol, smashing windows, injuring police officers, why did you? Why did it take you three hours to tell them to go home? I don't believe it did. Oh, let me pull it out. I have to pull it out. <laughs> so, so if you look at... On January 5th, the day before, I said, please support our Capitol Police and law enforcement. They are truly on the side of our country. Stay peaceful. Stay peaceful. This was the day before, and this was in the form of Twitter. Now use Truth, Truth Social. I think it's far superior. So is that fairly anodyne tweet was the day before. He then spoke in a very sort of, one could say, an insightful way um, at the Capitol before the riots took place. And then as the host there was mentioning, he didn't intervene for a very long time time. So you could see that as a bit of a non sequitur, a distraction from him there. Again, though, having that bit of paper made him seem fairly authoritative, didn't it? Um, if you're wondering why the audience is enjoying everything so much, huge cheers for Donald Trump. Well, it's because it was largely made up of Republicans. Um, that's because this was sort of pitched as he is not yet the presidential candidate. He is the candidate in the Republican primaries, although clearly um, the guy is already running his not just the primary campaign, but the presidential campaign. Um, those Republicans in the audience were also pleased with his answer on Ukraine. If I'm president, I will have that war settled in one day, 24 hours. How would you settle that war in one day? Because I'll meet with Putin, I'll meet with Zelensky. They both have weaknesses and they both have strengths. And within 24 hours, that war will be settled. It'll be over. It'll be absolutely Do you over. want Ukraine to win this war? Uh, I don't think in terms of winning and losing. I think in terms of getting it settled so we stop killing all these people and breaking down this country. Now, what do you... Can I just follow up on that? You said you don't think in terms of winning and losing. You have Mr. To get President, Europe. can I just follow up on that? Because that's a really important Excuse statement me, let me that just you just made up. there. Can you say if you want Ukraine or Russia to win this war? I want everybody to stop dying. They're dying, Russians and Ukrainians. I want them to stop dying. It shows how far US politics has shifted that that kind of comment um, gets a huge round of applause from the audience. Now, I mean, you know, I, I do not trust Donald Trump on foreign policy. I also want, you know, Ukraine to win the war, by the way. Um, I don't think they're going to get a total victory, but I think they're fighting um, a, a just defense of their country against an illegal in, in, invader. But the idea that you could have that very sort of, I mean, in, in the past, that would have been called a peacenik argument because he's so naive. He's just saying, oh, we should have his peace. But that's now um, big in the Republican Party, which, you know, there are some real upsides to that. A, a less hawkish American foreign policy, even if it's not dictated by morals, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, at other times in the town hall, there were familiar flashes of temper. In this clip, Collins is asking Trump about classified documents found at his Mar-a-Lago home. I was negotiating with NARA. Do you know what NARA is? The National Archives. Extremely, but you extremely don't left group of them. people. Extremely left. And I was negotiating with they're them. All of a sudden, they raided my house. They didn't raid the house of Joe Biden. They didn't raid Obama. But Joe Biden didn't ignore a subpoena to get those documents back like Joe you Biden did. And took so that's 1850 the question. Boxes. But that's the question that investigators have, I think, is why. You held on to those documents when you knew the federal government was seeking them and then had given you a subpoena to return them. Are you them. ready? 
Are you ready? Can I talk? Yeah, what's you the mind? answer? Can I, do you mind? I would like for you to answer the question. Okay, it's very simple to answer. That's why I asked it. It's very simple to You're a nasty person, I'll tell you. <laughs> Aaron, I want your thoughts on this. I mean, a number of things to say, you know, how is Donald Trump campaigning? But also, I think there are, you know, there's a huge debate among liberals and leftists in America to say, what the hell do we do about Donald Trump standing again? Huge criticisms in 2016 about the amount of coverage he got and people thinking that helped his campaign. Now people saying he shouldn't be platformed, but also he's running for president. I mean, how, what the hell do you do in this situation? Michael, the guy is a media genius. The whole thing about ending the war in 24 hours in Ukraine is just headlines. It's pure headlines and attention grabbing. Hundreds of millions, maybe billions of people would, you know, that's the kind of headline that reverberates around the world. I will end this thing. He's just saying, I will end it, peace, settlement, 24 hours. It's just immediate, it's like an immediate visual cue. You know, you think of somebody solving the problem, getting them around the table, sorting it out really quickly. I mean, it's obviously highly unlikely, even if he did manage to create some kind of peace settlement as US president. I mean, these things don't take 24 hours. It's just absurd. But it's, it's an extraordinary headline, right? So he is a media genius. And I think just because that doesn't necessarily tally with, you know, the words he uses, okay, he uses the vocabulary, maybe of like a 12 year old or something. So what, you know, he, that, that's clearly what matters in, in politics and in democratic society. If you're able to generate headlines like that, that's a real, it's a real talent. It's a huge talent. Um, and I think the best way of dealing with him as an individual actually is probably humor. I think you've got three options, right? as a political journalist, you either do the very sort of sensible, sedate, Mr. Mr. President, blah, 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 respectful, fact-based, sensible, sober, which is what was there. I don't think that works with Trump. You either go ultra-aggressive, you know, really go all in, which actually is very unusual in US broadcast. It's much more common to see that here in the UK. Think Paxman or, or Piers Morgan. There's a reason why the US sort of broadcast ecology likes British uh, broadcast journalists like Piers Morgan, or like Mehdi Hassan, because they have a style which is far more confrontational than, than what they're used to over in the United States, even though we are arguably the more deferential culture. It's just a strange aspect of, of UK political journalism, in broadcast, I should add. So that's one option. And I think another one is really just to mock him and, and lampoon him. So I think, I think something like John Stewart could probably do quite a good job with Trump of holding him accountable, actually, because part of the way that you do that, I think, is is through humor. I mean, humor is an incredibly powerful political tool. And I think Trump knows that uh, to, to a really extraordinary extent. And I think many Democrats don't know that. I think, by the way, also Barack Obama knew that. Uh, sometimes it's good to, if you want to defend yourself, it's better to not be too, quote unquote, defensive and just to, 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 to gesture at the fact that, you know, the person has a point. You maybe mock yourself, you mock the situation, you make light of it. Farage was very good at it for a while. Uh, Trump is, like I say, very good at it. And I think this genre of political journalism, when you're confronted with that, when you're confronted with somebody who just wants to make headlines, isn't interested in the truth, and really just wants to get their talking points across, and only talks in a sort of propagandistic, moralizing fashion, I, when she's doing her job, you're a bad person. It, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. It's particularly not going to work in front of Republican voters, as we saw there with that kind of microcosm. So... I suppose that would be my response, Michael. You either go in hard, you know, very, um, very kind of, uh, what's the word? Um, uh, I don't want to say disputive. I don't think that's quite right because obviously you want to give them a, a fair crack of the whip, but you, you really, really Paxman-esque approach or you, or you lampoon him. But I think the default of US broadcast journalism, MSNBC, CNN, I don't think it's going to wash. You want Cenk, Cenk from Young Turks, I think, right? You want something a bit more 
with a bit more oomph, a bit more fizz. I don't think it'll be coming from big US networks. Maybe Mehdi Hassan, who we interviewed not so long ago, maybe he will do a great job on uh, MSNBC. I wonder if Trump would give Mehdi Hassan an, an interview. I mean, a couple of takes I saw sort of from US commentators since this town hall happened. Brianna Joy Gray um, from the Bad Faith podcast, she was saying, you know, what the host should have been doing is arguing against his populist credentials. So sort of saying, why why did you give a tax cut, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then as you were sort of intimating towards Sarah and people saying it's a complete mistake to do this in a town hall format. If you want to hold someone accountable, don't give them a huge supportive audience in front of you so that they can play the audience to your disadvantage. It would be much easier to to call out lies or whatever if it's just you two sitting down there. Still difficult, but it should be easier. The CNN town hall um, took place just a day after Trump lost a civil case brought by E. Jean Carroll, the woman he assaulted sexually in a Manhattan department store in the mid-1990s. Um, the jury found him liable for sexual assault, battery and defamation and ordered Trump to pay $5 million in damages. So this should be pretty damaging for Donald Trump. But GB News in the UK put a different spin on the result. We said we'd bring some updates about the Donald Trump civil case. The jury, deliberating in the rape trial of Donald Trump, has found the former US president not guilty of the rape charges made against him. The civil lawsuit was brought by writer E. Jean Carroll, who accused Mr. Trump of raping her in a Manhattan department store in the 1990s. The verdict was returned as not guilty on rape charges. However, it did find that he sexually abused her. Now, I find this one of the most bizarre things about GP News, uh, the extent to which they're Trump-pilled, because I just don't think there is much of an audience for it in, in this country. And it was so clear in that, in that circumstance, because you've got all of these newspapers, you know, nearly the world's media said the astonishing thing here, the remarkable thing here, is the next president who is running to stand again as president has been found liable for sexual abuse. That was the big story. You know, it's never happened before, or as far as I know, it's never happened before. But... GB News decided the big story was he was not guilty of rape. So what the jury found in this civil case is that he was liable for sexual abuse. He wasn't liable for rape. They they said the balance of probabilities suggests sexual abuse. Now, you know, I haven't have gone through uh, the documents. I don't have much of a judgment on, you know, the evidence they were looking at. But it seems remarkable that a news organization thinks that him being not found guilty for rape was the big story and not him being found guilty of sexual abuse. Aaron, what do you... What do you make of sort of GB News trying to bring Trumpism to the UK? Like, obviously, I can see why Fox News and everyone has sort of leaned into it because that's their base. Their base are Trumpists who really want this guy to be covered positively. Is there a demand in the UK for people to be saying, oh, yeah, Donald Trump, what a guy? It's so strange, isn't it, Michael? It's so strange. And it's something you see repeatedly with sort of right-wing populists in this country. They try and appropriate far right over in the United States, and it just doesn't work. You know, it just does not work. I think fundamentally, actually, there's amongst the sort of blue-collar working-class base that GB News is pursuing, I think there's probably a, an instinctive distrust of the United States anyway. I think a large number of them actually have, a, I wouldn't call it an anti-imperialism, because it's not, but they would be very sceptical and critical of the Iraq war, for instance. So, and, and, they, and they would say that, you know, Tony Blair made this country George W. Bush's poodle. I, I think a GB News audience, we just as likely to say that as a BBC or a Guardian reader, frankly. I think that's something which really transcends this whole Brexit remain, left, right kind of thing, fundamentally. Um, and you're right, the, the idea that sort of blue-collar UK audience, which is, again, like I said, that's what they're going after. I'm not saying that is their audience, but that's what they're going after. Yeah, the idea that they're somehow emotionally invested in Donald Trump is just clearly absurd. All the polling from Trump 
in the UK, for instance, when he visited the country uh, while president, is very negative towards him. Now, you might be watching this saying that's unfair or I like Trump or whatever. We're we're talking about the fact that GB News are peddling a sort of line on Trump, which is just really incongruent, rather, with the values of their audience. And also Jacob Rees-Mogg, you know, he politically, he's, he's, he's a conservative, he's on the right, but he's not that similar to Trump. I, I don't quite understand why he would go to bat for him. You know, Jacob Rees-Mogg is an orthodox Thatcherite monetarist. I'll give you an example, right? Trump is saying that we have a problem with high inflation um, and, uh, you know, we need to help average Joe. I don't know how, what proposal he would say. Jacob Rees-Mogg would say, well, actually, interest rates should be higher. He's a classic 1980s monetarist. His, his take on inflation would be, in this country, for instance, put interest rates at 15%. And then after three or four months, inflation will go down. And yes, it'd be very painful at first, but we'll get rid of the problem more quickly. I don't think Trump would say that. So it's really, really, really confusing uh, to, to, to see Rees-Mogg, GB News go back for Trump. You know, I wonder where it comes from. It's an interesting question, isn't it? My guess, and I have to say this is wholly a guess, is that it has less to do with an attempt to appeal to their audience and more to do with sort of the backroom of the organization. Because I think on the one hand, they, they like the idea that they can get the status of interviewing presidents. So obviously, you know, GB News is sort of fighting to, to be seen as a serious news organization that can compete with, with the other ones. And if they're the ones who get the interview with the president, then that's presumably that they see that as helpful for them. I also wonder if there is some sort of backroom relationships between the UK right and the US right, where they are more aligned on sort of Trumpism than actually the UK public are. We need to rush on to our next story. The Renters' Reform Bill is a Tory proposal that would do the bare minimum to improve the lives of renters. It doesn't promise rent controls or the mass building of social housing, things which might actually make renting more affordable, but it would get rid of no-fault evictions, making renting just that little bit more secure. Yet, Even with these very modest goals, the bill has still come up against vociferous opposition from Tory backbenchers. And you'll never guess, this will come as a huge surprise to you. Many of those Tory backbenchers opposing the renters' reform bill are themselves landlords. And this is the basis of a great story in the I newspaper. So the headline, renters' reform bill inside the rebellion over new renting laws led by Tory landlords. And we can go to the body of the article. They say this, among those considering voting against the renters' reform bill are believed to include high-profile Tories such as Jacob Rees-Mogg, who lists rental income from properties in Somerset and London among his entries in Parliament's Register of Members' Interests. Kevin Hollenrake, the former chairman of national estate agency chain Hunters, is also thought to be a potential rebel. How curious these landlords and estate agents who don't want regulation to protect renters. The I also have some great quotes from landlord Tory MPs. So these are three separate landlord Tory MPs who all want to remain anonymous. At the moment, we have a government that's adopting all Jeremy Corbyn housing policies, except we're not building any more homes. Why should landlords be forced to accept that market forces don't apply to them when we're not committed to building more homes to ease prices? It's not the fault of landlords that the price of renting is going up. It's the fault of not enough homes being available to either buy or rent. Costs of being a landlord are much higher now. So why shouldn't landlords be able to charge more and rent their properties to people at the market rate to cover their increased costs? A couple of things to say about this. I actually agree we need to increase the supply of rental housing to get the price of rent down. There's something inconsistent here, which is basically saying landlords are increasing rent because costs are going up. But then you say, oh, landlords are increasing rent because there's a shortage. Which one is it? You know, are you just taking advantage of a shift in the market, which is so saying we're, we're going to jack up rents because we know that demand is up and supply is down. That's what they're actually doing. And then he's pretending 
that this is because of costs. The price of rent isn't really determined by the cost of landlords. It's determined by landlords saying, we will charge the highest amount we can possibly charge. The idea that it's based on their costs, I think, is a little bit ridiculous. And I think this, this anonymous landlord, we won't be able to challenge him because he's anonymous, is trying to have it both ways. Um, let's go to a comment from a separate landlord, um, another Tory MP who rents out residential properties. They said this, there is a significant number that have issues with the bill and I remain skeptical about it. The best way to bring rents down is to build more homes and make it easier for people to get on the housing ladder. We now understand the bill may have been delayed and some of us are hopeful that this means Michael Gove is willing to listen to the concerns among people like me, i.e., landlords who are also MPs for the Tory party. I'm not entirely sure why it's been delayed, but whatever the reason, we now have a chance to ensure the bill does not introduce overburdensome restrictions on landlords who are key in any housing market. God, imagine putting a restriction on landlords being able to evict single mothers and families at two months notice for, you know, when they've been paying the rent on time and they haven't done anything wrong. That's the basis of what, what a no-fault eviction is our final anonymous landlord. Punishing landlords is not going to increase the stock of rental housing. Indeed, it is more likely to reduce it as landlords sell up. I do have an interest in this topic, of course, but anyone who is a landlord will understand the market more than someone who is not. Aaron Bastani, landlords understand the rental market more than anyone, so we should let them decide on laws when it comes to renting. I mean, there are also millions of people called renters who are very acquainted with the, the rental market in this country. I mean, they, they understand what it's like to be a consumer in this market far more than a landlord. So I think that's quite an irrational logic, frankly. We've had in this country since 2008, you know, this has been a Goldilocks era for landlords. It's been a wonderful time to be a landlord. You've had a virtually 0% interest rates. And, and frankly, you could just bump up rent every year, every year. And you could bump it up by more than the base rate of inflation. Inflation generally, until quite recently, was averaging 3 4%. You know, it was hitting generally the Bank of England's target of, of, of 2%. Sometimes it was lower than that, sometimes higher. Rent increases would be significantly above that, you know, 5 10%. I know having lived in London for a very long time, it'd be very normal to have an annual rent increase of 10%. But why? Well, that's just the market, mate. Sorry. Like it a lump bit. Uh, but the cost of lending for you is no higher than it was. In fact, it may have, it may have been lower. So they've had a wonderful time. And the minute they've got a few slight difficulties and their assets aren't going up in value 15% a year, and they can't just, you know, increase rent by more than the, the base rate of inflation that we have to pay for everything else. Apparently housing is different. They start whining and complaining. And it's not, you know, these are not just random landlords. Like you say, it's the most powerful people in the country. We have 650 legislators in this country in the House of Commons. They are the most powerful people in this country, fundamentally. If you get a majority of those people to vote on an issue, that then becomes statute. It becomes law. We all have to abide by it. And they're whinging and whining and moaning. And like you say, about things like a, a note for eviction, the idea that you can be evicted. You sign a contract. Michael, this is crazy. They're meant to be capitalists. They're meant to believe in contract. You sign a contract for 12 months and they say after three months, sorry, you need to go. Sorry. How's that a contract? You tell me. A great book by Vicky Spratt. I interviewed her here at Navarra Media on Downstream. Throughout the book, she offers you know, example after example of people being treated horrifically. Uh, by the private sector, by by landlords, and I understand their margins are shrinking. You know, it's not; it is no longer a machine to make money. My heart bleeds. My heart bleeds. Oh no, I'll have to sell up and maybe do something like start a business which employs people and creates value in the wider economy. Oh my God, people didn't have to do that for thousands of years. So, 
I really don't have any sympathy with those landlords. But like you say, there is an important um, adjunct here, Michael, which is that as landlords sell and you get more owner-occupiers buying those properties, and of course we want more owner-occupiers, it's not a bad thing, but that means density goes down, there's less supply, which means rents go up, because of course we're not building either. That is a major problem. So these idiots, these greedy, money-grabbing, Tory parasites are at least right about that. We do need to be building a lot more homes. There is no solution to the rental crisis without that. Unfortunate thing is because these MPs are remaining anonymous, you know, these ones saying, oh, the issue is supply, we need to build more houses, it's not about regulations. We, we have no idea if these are the same Tory MPs who sort of try and destroy any chance of having planning reform and sort of stopping NIMBYs, stopping any houses, but getting built. So I can very much imagine these are the same Tory MPs who say, no, we don't want to build any social housing. No, we don't want to build any houses in our area, in my constituency, but also uh, don't regulate me as a landlord because the issue is supply. One thing you made me think of there, Aaron, you sort of said, yes, landlords might have some knowledge of what the rental industry is like. Obviously, renters have a bit more. There are 177 MPs in Parliament who are landlords, so around one in four. How many MPs do you think don't own a home? Now, I can't give you the answer to that because we don't know. So the reason we know how many are landlords is because they have to put their financial interests in their register of interest. But as far as I understand it, they don't have to log whether or not they own a home. But I wouldn't actually be surprised if all 650 MPs owned a home. Um, it would be a very interesting thing to find out. If you've got an idea of finding out uh, of a way that we could find out how many MPs are renters, not their second home because they rent second homes off the taxpayer's expense in London, but their principal homes, if they don't own a home, um, I would love to know who they are. Final story. The Tories can't stop lying about refugees and Immigration Minister Robert Jenrick has finally been called out on it. Even if somebody originated from a place of danger, uh, such as Afghanistan, the vast majority of those people coming across on small boats are coming from France. Yeah. And they're choosing to come to the UK for whatever reason. As they're is their essentially right. asylum shoppers no, or economic migrants. No, it is migrants. their right under the Refugee Convention to apply for asylum anywhere. Well, the they're Refugee, convention, shoppers, the refugee convention also says that people should seek sanctuary, should seek asylum in the first safe country. And that's a really no, core principle that we as a government believe very strongly. We should be prioritizing people who are in a place of danger rather than people who are in a place of safety Sorry, like that, France. That's not true. That is a bad use of our national that resources. That is not true. The Refugee Convention does not say you must seek sanctuary in the first safe country. The, the, the Refugee Convention does uh, encourage people to do that. It and does that's not a key say principle. you must seek sanctuary that's a key in the principle. first safe country, which you just said. That's not true. It, 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 that's a key principle that we support as a government. All right. Well, it's not because the we Refugee Convention. Because we don't think convention. it's right. We don't think it's right that if you're in a safe country like France, that you should be coming to the UK. It's in the Refugee Convention that refugees should seek asylum in the first safe country. And the interviewer, Christian Guru Murphy, quite correctly says, no, it's not. Robert Jenrick, who is the immigration minister, by the way, this isn't just someone who happens to have a different brief and has been put on as the government spokesperson is a little out of their depth. No, this is a person whose job in government is to know a lot about immigration, either outright lying or completely wrong and misinformed. I think he probably knew he was lying because at the end he said, oh, well, no, this is a principle we think is very important. So he sort of moved away from this idea that it was in the Refugee Convention and saying, oh, no, this is a, this is a, uh, it's a principle we believe in anyway, um, even if it's not in international law. Also worth noting that the reason this isn't in the Refugee Convention is because it would be completely dysfunctional. If you had, as international law, you should seek asylum in the first country 
you go through, then when there is a civil war in, say, Syria, for example, and 10 million people try and leave, or however many people tried to, tried to leave, it would be the case that all of those 10 million would have to claim asylum in, 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 in Lebanon or, or Iraq, and then you'd end up with, with all of these asylum seekers in the same place, which is not going to work very well, right? The, the whole point, if, if we were to have a, a sensible international law on asylum, it would be about sharing out people when there is a conflict in a particular zone. Because if you say, oh, anyone in a conflict zone has to seek refuge, refuge in the country next door, which by the way, most of them do anyway. So, so most refugees are in the global south and they are in countries next to conflict zones. But the idea that every single person should claim asylum in those places next to the conflict zone, one, it's very unfair, but also, I mean, it's going to lead to such intense instability because as soon as you have a civil war in one place, you've then got millions and millions and millions of people arriving in the place next door. It would be, it would be terrible. So there's a reason it's not an international law. It's not just, oh, it's a bit outdated. They should have included that if they'd fought a bit more. No, there's a reason it's not there. A Downing Street spokesperson was asked about the interview by journalists today. According to The Guardian, Downing Street has effectively conceded that Robert Jenrick, the immigration minister, was wrong to say that under the UN Refugee Convention, asylum seekers should apply in the first safe country they reach, saying instead it is merely an important principle for the government. So they've, they've confused themselves for the UN. Um, oh, no. Oh, oh, no. I thought it was the UN Refugee Convention. No, it's actually just us. It was actually just us that fought this. Having helped collapse the British economy, Michael, now people like Robert Jenrick want to basically create dozens of failed states around the world, you know. We have failure in the NHS, we have a failure with the housing market, we have a failure with public services. Why don't we have loads of failed states? Let's really up the ante. Let's be a bit more ambitious in what we want to fail. You know, so if you have, for instance, uh, refugees coming out of Afghanistan, they're all meant to go to Iran? Really? You've got one failed state, let's have another. And then, of course, people leave Iran, let's say there's political instability, but they all go to Iraq. And of course, we know there's lots of people in Iraq. That country's unstable because of clever UK foreign policy. Okay, well, they all go to Syria. Oh, well, that place is unstable too. All those people go to Turkey. Okay, now Turkey has 150 million people. Just so stupid, so malevolent, so thick. You know, it's a serious question. Is there a ladder here? I suppose it makes sense, right? Because right at the top, of course, is the climate. They want to fuck that up as well. They want to fuck up everything. NHS, housing, work, employment rights, public services, and then we go a bit higher, nation states, and then right to the top, climate. Cancel the species, the real cancel culture, brought to you by the Conservative Party. Credit to Krishnan Gurumurthy, he was prepared there. And I think the reason why people like Jenrick talk so loose and fast about legislation, which is not a matter of opinion, black and white, you're right or wrong, but the fact they talk so loose and fast about these kinds of things and these matters is because they generally feel that journalists are underprepared, and that's true. Uh, and I think it's a real credit to Christian Guru Murphy and Channel 4 that the caliber of their journalism meant that Robert Jenrick couldn't get away with it. There is a reason why uh, most conservatives and Boris Johnson avoided Channel 4 ahead of the 2019 general election. I suspect something similar may happen ahead of uh, 2024 because they do their job. It's also just such a ridiculous rhetorical maneuver, isn't it? It's like you, you, you try and steal a sandwich from Pret, you get caught and you say, oh no, the law says, the law says um, that if you're hungry and it's half an hour before closing time, you're allowed to steal a sandwich. The law says that. And they say, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. You say, no, it does. It does say that. The law says that. Then sort of five minutes later, you concede, oh, oh, I was wrong. It's not the law that says that. It was me that fought that. I got confused with my own uh, beliefs, my own preferences for the law.
I mean, that's essentially what's going on there. You, you, you can't just say, oh, no, oh, no, mistaken, mistaken. It's not in the Refugee Convention. It's just what we think. Aaron, let's wrap up there. Um, I, you know, we don't need to make this too emotional because we're going to see each other tomorrow night. You're going to be in the host chair then. I will be co-hosting. Um, I'm looking forward to it already. Can't wait, Michael. Looking forward to it. And everybody who's watching, if you haven't hit it already, smash subscribe. Join us tomorrow evening. We love our Friday shows, Michael and I. Thank you, everyone, for watching this evening. Come back tomorrow at 6 p.m. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.